Chapter Sixteen, Part Three, of a History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Sixteen, Part Three. Section Four, Focus and the Sacred War. In the meantime, another of the states of northern Greece seemed likely to win the position of supremacy, which Thessaly had seemed on the eve of winning, and which Boeotia had actually held for a few years. Phocis now came forward in her turn and enjoyed a brief moment of expansion and conquest a flashlight which vanished almost as soon as it appeared. In succession to the national leaders, Jason of Ferea and Apaminondas of Thebes, we now meet Onomarchus of Elatea. Into this career of aggrandizement, Phocis was thrust by the aggression of her neighbors rather than lured by the lust of conquest. The Pokians had never been zealous adherents of the Boeotian alliance, which they were forced to join after the Battle of Leuctra, and they cut themselves loose from it after the death of Epaminondas. But those Thebes could no longer maintain her wider supremacy in Greece, and independent focus was a source of constant danger to her in her narrower supremacy in Boeotia, as the western cities of the land could always find in focus a stay and support for their own independence. It was therefore deemed necessary by the politicians of Thebes to strike a blow at their western neighbors. One of the instruments of which Epaminondas had made use to promote his city's influence in the north was the old Amphictyonic League, which for a hundred years had never appeared on the scene of history. At an assembly of this body, soon after Leuctra, the Thebans accused the Spartans of having seized the Cadmea in time of peace. The Spartans were sentenced to pay a fine of five hundred talents. The fine could not indeed be exacted, but they were doubtless excluded from the temple of Delphi. The Thebans resolved to wield against Phocus the same engine which they had wielded against Sparta. The nature of the pretext is uncertain, but it was not difficult to find a misdemeanor which would seem grave enough to the Thessalians and Locrians, inveterate enemies of Phocis, to justify a sentence of condemnation. A number of rich and prominent Phocians were condemned to pay large fines for sacrilege. And when these sums were not paid within the prescribed time, the Amphictions decreed that the lands of the defaulters should be taken from them and consecrated to the Delphian god, and a tablet with the inscribed decree was set up at Delphi. The men who were implicated in the alleged sacrilege determined to resist, and they appealed to their fellow countrymen, in whatever form of federal assembly the Phocian cities used to discuss their common interests, to protect themselves and their property against the threatened danger. The man who took the lead in organizing the resistance was Philomelus, a wealthy citizen of Ledon. He discerned clearly that mercenaries would be required to defend Phocis against her enemies, Boeotians, Locrians, and Thessalians, 
and made the bold and practical proposal that Delphi should be seized, since the treasures of Delphi would supply at need the sinews of war. It's hardly likely that he openly avowed the true reason of the importance of seizing Delphi. It was enough to assert the old rights of the Phocians over rocky Pitho, rights for which he could appeal to the highest authority, the sacred text of Homer, and to point out that the Delphians were implicated in the unjust decrees of the Amphictyons. The proposals of Philomelus were adopted, and he was appointed general of the Phocian forces with full powers. His first step was to visit Sparta, not only as the enemy of Thebes, but as being in the same case as Phocis, lying under an Amphictyonic sentence which had recently been renewed and confirmed. King Archidamus welcomed the proposals of the Phocian plenipotentiary, but Sparta stood in a rather awkward position. Hitherto she had always supported the Delphians in maintaining their independence against Phocian claims, as, for instance, when in the days of Pericles she restored them to their shrine after the Phocians, with Athenian aid, had dispossessed them. It would consequently have been a flagrant inconsistency in Spartan policy to turn against the Delphians now, so that Archidamus did not openly avow his sympathy with the Phocian cause, but privately he supported it, by placing fifteen talents in the hands of Philomelus. With this sum and fifteen talents from his own purse, Philomelus was able to hire some mercenaries, and with their help to seize Delphi. The Locrians of neighboring Amphissa, whom the Delphians had summoned to their aid, arrived too late, and were repulsed. Philomelus did no hurt to the people of Delphi, excepting only the clan of the Trachiade, bitter Antiphocians, whom he put to death. The first object of Philomelus was to enlist Hellenic opinion in his favor. He had the secret sympathy of Sparta, and he might count on the friendship of Athens, who had always been an ally of Phocis, and was now an enemy of Thebes. He sent envoys to Sparta, to Athens, to Thebes itself, to explain the Phocian position. These envoys were instructed to say that in seizing Delphi the Phocians were simply resuming their rights over the temple, which belonged to them, and had been usurped by others, and to declare that they would act merely as administrators of the Panhellenic sanctuary, and were ready to allow all the treasures to be weighed and numbered, and to be responsible to Greece for their safety. In consequence of these embassies, Sparta came forward from her reserve, and openly allied herself with Phocis, while Athens and some smaller states promised their support. The Thebans and their Amphictyonic friends resolved to make war. In the meantime, Philomelus had fortified the Delphic sanctuary by a wall, and had collected an army of five thousand men, with which he could easily hold the position. It was his wish that the oracle responses from the mystic tripod should continue to be given as usual to those who came to consult Apollo, and he was anxious above all to receive some voice of approval or encouragement from the god. But the Delphian priestess was stubborn to the Phocian intruder, and refused to prophesy. He tried to seat her by force upon the tripod, and in her alarm 
she bade him do as he would. He eagerly seized these words as an oracular sanction of his acts. It soon became necessary to raise more money for paying the mercenaries, and for this purpose Philomelus, refraining as long as he could from touching the treasures of the shrine, levied a contribution from the rich Delphians. At first he had to deal only with the Locrians, whom he finally defeated in a hot battle near the Phadriad Cliffs, which rise sheer above Delphi. The loss of the Locrians was heavy. Some of them, driven to the edge, hurled themselves down the cliffs. This victory forced the Thebans to prepare actively to intervene. The Amphictyonic assembly met at Thermopylae, and it was decided that an Amphictyonic army should enforce the decree of the League against the Phocians, and rescue Delphi from their power. Philomelus, with the forces which he had, might hold his own against the Locrians, but not against the host which would now be arrayed against him. There were only two means of saving Phocis. One was the active support of Athens or Sparta, or both. The other was the organization of a large army of mercenaries. As neither Athens nor Sparta showed willingness to give any immediate assistance, nothing remained but the other alternative. And that alternative, as Philomelus must have foreseen from the beginning, would not be possible without the control of far larger sums of money than could either be contributed by the Phocian cities or extorted from the Delphian proprietors. No resource remained but to make use of the treasures of the temple. At first Philomelus was scrupulous. He only borrowed from the god enough to meet the demand of the moment. But, as habitude blunted the first feelings of scrupulousness, and as needs grew more pressing, the Phocians dealt as freely with the sacred vessels and the precious dedications as if they were their own. By offering large pay, Philomelus assembled an army of ten thousand men, who cared little whence the money came. An indecisive war with the Thebans and Locrians was waged for some time, till at length the Phocians underwent a severe defeat near Neon, on the north side of Mount Parnassus. The general fought desperately, and covered with wounds, he was driven to the verge of a precipice, where he had to choose between capture and self-destruction. He hurled himself down from the cliff, and perished. The Thebans imagined that the death of Philomelus meant the doom of the Phocian cause, and they retired after the battle. But it was not so. In Onomarchus of Eletaia, who had been associated with him in the command of the army, he had a successor as able as himself. The retreat of the enemy gave Onomachus time to reorganize the troops and collect reinforcements, and he not only coined the gold and silver ornaments of the temple, but beat the bronze and iron donatives into arms for the soldiers. He then entered upon a short career of signal successes. Westward he forced Locrian Amphissa to submit, to northward he reduced Doris, and crossing the passes of Mount Oeta, he made himself master of Thermopylae, and captured the Locrian Thronion, near the eastern gate of the pass. Eastward he took possession of Orchonemus, and restored those of the inhabitants, who had escaped the sword of the Thebans, 
ten years before. The Thebans, meanwhile, were hampered by want of money, and having neither mines like Philip, nor a rich temple like Phocis, they decided to replenish their treasury by sending out a body of troops on foreign service. We have already seen Sparta and Athens raising money by the same means, and the Theban soldiers who now went forth under Pamenes hired themselves out to the same Persian satrap Artabazus, for whom the Athenian Carus had won a victory over the army of the king. Pamenes was equally successful, but it does not seem that his expedition profited the Boeotian treasury, for he presently became suspected by Artabazus, who threw him into prison. Among the most important uses to which Onomarchus applied the gold of Delphi was the purchase of the alliance of the tyrants of Ferrae. By this policy, Thessaly was divided, and the Sicilian League, beset by the hostility of Ferrae, was unable to cooperate with the Thebans against Phocis. But the Thessalians, being hard-pressed, turned for help to their northern neighbor, Philip of Macedon, and his intervention south of Mount Olympus marks a new stage in the course of the Sacred War. Philip had lately deprived Athens of her last ally on the Termaic Gulf by the capture of Methoni, the Athenian expedition of relief coming too late to save it. He readily acceded to the request of the Thessalians to act as their general. It was a convenient occasion to begin the push southward and lay the foundation of Macedonian supremacy in Greece, plans which were now coming within the range of practical effort. Against the forces which Philip led to the support of the Thessalian League, it was hopeless for Lycophron of Ferraia to stand alone. The tyrant was lost, unless he were succored by the arm of those who had already furnished him with gold. Nor did the Phocians leave him unsupported. The strength of Onomarchus was now so great that he could spare a force of seven thousand men for a campaign in the north. But his brother Philus, to whom he entrusted the command, was beaten out of Thessaly by Philip. Then Onomarchus went forth himself, at the head of the whole Phocian host, about twenty thousand, to rescue his ally. Far superior in numbers, he defeated the Macedonian army in two battles, with serious loss. Philip was compelled to withdraw into Macedonia, and Onomarchus delivered Thessaly into the hands of Lycophron. At this moment, the power of the Phocians was at its height. Their supremacy reached from the shores of the Corinthian Gulf to the slopes of Olympus. They were masters of the Fas of Thermopylae, and they had two important posts in western Boeotia. For, in addition to Orchomenus, they won Coronea immediately after the Thessalian expedition. If all these things had befallen at some other epoch, the Phocian power might have endured for a time, and the name of their able leader might have been more familiar to posterity. But Onomarchus had fallen on evil days. He and his petty people were swept away in the onward course of a greater nation and a greater chief. Philip of Macedon speedily retrieved the humiliation which he had suffered at the hands of his Phocian foes. In the following year he descended again into Thessaly, 
and Onomarchus went forth again to succor his ally or dependent. In the preceding campaign, Philip had captured the port of Pagasae and placed in it a Macedonian garrison. It was important not only for Perae, but for Athens, that this post should not remain in his hands, and Carus was sent with an Athenian fleet to assist the Phocians in recovering it. The decisive battle was fought at a place unknown, near the Pagasaean Gulf. The numbers of the infantry were nearly equal, but Philip's cavalry and his tactics were far superior. More than a third of the Phocian army was slain or made prisoners, and Onomarchus was killed. Ferae was then captured, and Lycophron driven from the land, and Philip, having thus become master of Thessaly, prepared to march southward, for the purpose of delivering the shrine of Apollo from the possession of the Phocians, whom he professed to regard as sacrilegious usurpers. Phocis was now in great need, and her allies, Sparta, Achaea, and Athens, at length determined to give her active help. The Macedonian must not be permitted to pass Thermopylae. The statesman Eubulus, whose influence was now predominant at Athens, and was chiefly directed to the maintenance of peace, acted promptly on this occasion, and sent a large force under Nausicles to defend the pass. Philip at once recognized that it would be extremely hazardous to attempt to force the position, and he retired. He was a prince who knew when to wait and when to strike. Thus Phocis was rescued for the time, she was indebted both to Sparta and Achaia, who had sent her aid, but most of all to Athens. In supporting Phocis, the Spartans had objects of their own in view. They had not abandoned their hopes of winning back Messenia and destroying Megalopolis. It was therefore their policy to sustain Phocis, in order that Phocis might keep Thebes so fully occupied that they would have a free hand in the Peloponnesus without fear of Theban interference. The successes of Onomarchus in his first Thessalian campaign encouraged Sparta to prepare for action, and Megalopolis, made aware of the danger, applied to Athens for help. It was a request which no practical statesman could have entertained, and it had no chance of being granted under the regime of as wise a head as Eubolus. Orators like Demosthenes, who constituted themselves the opponents of Eubulus, might invoke the old principle that it was the policy of Athens to keep Sparta weak. But this was an obsolete maxim, for there was now no serious prospect of Sparta becoming formidably strong. It was no concern of Athens to meddle in the Peloponnesus now. Her true policy was to keep on friendly terms with Sparta, and, in conjunction with her, to support the Phocian state against Thebes, Thessaly, and Macedon. This was the policy which Eubulus followed. The war broke out in the Peloponnesus soon after the check of Philip at Thermopylae. While Athens held aloof, Achaia and Elis, Phleus and Mantinea, supported Sparta, and the Phocians sent three thousand men to her help. But all these forces were outnumbered by the Messenians, Arcadians, and Argives, to whom the Thebans had sent a considerable aid. 
A series of engagements were fought. They were almost all indecisive, but they rescued Messenia and the Arcadian capital, and frustrated the plans of Lacedaemon. The death of Onomarchus developed the leadership of the Phocian League upon his brother Faulus. At first, the Phocians barely maintained their posts in western Boeotia, but presently, after the return of the auxiliaries whom they had sent to the Peloponnesus, they conquered Epicnemedian Locris and laid siege to Narux, which they ultimately captured. Thus Faulus maintained the power of Phocis for about two years. Then he was carried off by disease, and was succeeded by his nephew, Phalaecus, son of Onomachus. Under Phalaecus the war dragged on for a few more years, without any notable achievement, the Thebans winning battles of no importance, and ravaging Phocis, the Phocians retaining their grip on western Boeotia. The rise of Phocis to its momentary position as one of the leading powers in Greece depended on two conditions, the possession of Delphi and the possibility of hiring mercenaries. It is therefore clear that Phocis could not easily have come to the front before the fourth century, when mercenary service had come widely into vogue. But these two essential features of the Phocian power, the occupation of Delphi, and the employment of mercenary troops gave it a bad name. Historians echo the invectives of the enemies of Phocis, and give the impression that during the sacred war the sanctuary of Apollo was in the hands of sacrilegious and unscrupulous barbarians. Tales were told how the dedicatory offerings were bestowed upon the loose favorites of the generals, how Philomelus gave a golden dress to a dancing girl, or Faulus a sylvan beaker to a flute-player. It matters little whether such scandals are true or false. If true, they would only show that the generals were not above petty peculations. But the Phocians were not alone the secretors of the shrine of Apollo. They could establish as good a claim to Delphi as many claims founded on remote events in the past and they certainly desired to maintain the Panhellenic dignity and sanctity of the shrine, and the oracle, as high as ever under their own administration. But they regarded Delphi not only as a Panhellenic sanctuary, but as a national sanctuary of Phocis, somewhat in the same way as Athens employed the treasures of her temples for national purposes of defense in the Peloponnesian War, so Phocis felt justified in employing the treasures of Apollo, for the national interest of Phocis. Throughout all, the Phocian statesmen could have maintained that they were only borrowing from the god loans, which would be gradually paid back after the restoration of the peace. Recently there has come to light, among the original documents inscribed in the stones of Delphi, a striking disproof of the old view which conceived the Phocians of Onomarchus and Faulus as a band of robbers, holding their orgies in a holy place. The temple of the god, which had been built by the Alcmaeonids, was destroyed by an earthquake nearly twenty years before the Phocian usurpation. The work of rebuilding had been begun, perhaps soon after, but had advanced slowly, and when Philomelus seized Delphi, the completion of the temple was still far off. 
The work was carried out under a commission of temple builders, in which all the Amphictyonic states were represented, and this body administered a fund set apart for the building. During the Phocian usurpation, the council of temple builders still held their meetings. The work still went on. The skilful artisans in Corinth and elsewhere brought the stone material and transferred it to Delphi, as if nothing had befallen. The payments were made, as usual, from the fund, and the accounts were kept. We have some of them still. Those Amphictyonic states, which were at war with Phocis, like Thebes and Thessaly, were naturally not represented at the meetings of the board of the temple builders, but Delphian members were always present, and after Locris had been conquered by Faulus, we find Locrians also attending the meetings. Thus the completion of the temple of Apollo was not suspended while the Phocians held the sanctuary, and the Dorian and Ionian states continued to take their part in the Panhellenic work of supervising the structure, as if nothing had happened, to alter the center of the Greek world. End of chapter 16, part 3